my name is Tim Lang and I'm Professor of Food Policy at City University in London. So, so Tim, you've been involved for many years in food policy and issues around around food. What's your sense of how the the kind of austerity push over the last three or four years has has affected those issues and those debates and discussions? Well, at one level, what it's done is bring back a very old theme into both public consciousness and debates around food policy. Um, in that, here is one of the wealthiest societies on the planet, fifth or sixth uh, by GDP, where there are not just pockets, but enormous patches of food poverty, of people cutting back on food to make ends meet. This is, however, overlaid onto long-term distortions in the food system between supply and public health. We already have a remarkable social gradient, as it's sometimes called, between life expectancy, body shape and income. Essentially, richer people are thinner, live longer, poorer people die earlier and are more tending towards obesity. There are enormous gaps between the richest and the poorest in Britain, in which all of the problems of food are manifest. Availability, access, cost, all of these issues are not new issues. I could take you to debates in the early 1800s and these themes were emerging as industrialization rapidly developed in Britain as rural populations went to work in the new factories, as people were fed adulterated food because it was cheaper than uh, good food. And a whole complicated raft of cultural issues got laid down into British life, our expectations, like the expectation that food is and should and is good if it's cheap. Those were arguments all fought out in the middle of the 19th century. And here we are in the so-called new austerity, the beginning of the 21st century. And some of those themes are coming back with remarkable echoes to the past and from the past. So for someone like me, who has, I'm a university lecturer, I'm well paid, uh, but I cut my food policy teeth researching food poverty in Manchester and Sheffield with colleagues in the Thatcher austerity, the early 1980s, one saw an explosion of food poverty as people lost their jobs, as welfare systems were cut and pruned, and a process like that is now happening again, but accelerating. The only difference, I would say, between not just the 1980s and now, but between now and the earlier periods where this theme has come up, and been enormously important, by the way, in shaping British politics, 
The only difference between now and and previous era eras is that I think we've got now a situation where food has never been so cheap, but yet even so, the Milburn report three weeks ago pointed out rightly that five million people are living in a really very poor way and that work is not the way out of poverty necessarily. So we've got this extraordinary split world of mega rich bankers to parody it, but very, very, very high concentration of wealth alongside a vast squeezed millions of people and households uh, at the bottom. And the language of politics isn't dealing with it. The language of policy is not dealing with it. Actually, all that the government is doing is squeezing it further. It's astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. But it's also posed enormous problems to the environmental movement, which has been saying, well, we need to make need to make food more expensive to internalize costs. How do we get around this? How do we get around that argument in public health, which also thinks cheap fat, cheap sugars are too cheap. That's why people at the bottom of the heap are fatter. They're eating poor diets. But the food industry is pouring these things out. And the food industry is the biggest employer in Britain. 3.5 million people work in it. So it's wrapped up in complications today in 2013 that would have been unimaginable to people in the 1840s let alone in the 1930s and one of the one of the things that, that we see now is is the, um, uh, the the push towards saying well supermarkets supermarkets can provide cheap food so austerity means that basically we need we need cheap food and so we need supermarkets more is this a time when we need supermarkets more or when we need supermarkets less one of the things that is so interesting and also worrying about the present time on food poverty is that it is coinciding with the first time since the 1870s that food prices are going up. Having said that, let me correct myself. There have been four occasions in which food prices, the long drop in food prices, has stopped. The first was World War One, and you can see it in the figures, the price goes up. But then the long drop in food prices carries on. Then in the Second World War, prices went up, but then came down afterwards. And then in the oil crisis of the early 1970s. And then the deal was done with uh, OPEC and prices again carried on coming down. And then when in 2007-8 the banking crisis uh, triggered and coincided, was certainly symbiotic with the agricultural commodity spike, as it's called, Again, the, the mainstream dominant economists, economists and way of thinking said, don't worry, it'll carry on coming down afterwards. This is situation normal. And some of us, I was one, uh, were arguing, no, it won't, because we're now entering a very different world where it's not just 20 OECD countries that are rich. Half the planet 
is getting sufficiently rich to eat differently. And indeed, the Western companies have gone in and sold and pushed the soft drink, fast food culture, uh, ready-made foods, processed foods as modernity. And that world will actually not be one where the prices continue coming down. And indeed, we've been proven right. Now the, the, the vault farces have gone on by the conventional dominant economics. And the OECD now will say prices rising in volatility is the new norm. I couldn't have said that or written that. It was a totally, totally marginal view uh, that people like me had, and I suspect you. But this actually is tricky because what it's doing is undermining the consumer bargain that you'll get endless choice, endless cheap goods, and you can be in charge of browsing and grazing your way through the hypermarket of life. That's unpicking. Uh, uncertainty is there. Uh, even if people are well paid in a country like Britain, their kids aren't. And the bubble of property has blown up and is now re-puffing up again in London and the southeast. But people who are young can't afford to buy houses. There are structural problems, even if you just look within Britain, let alone globally. And food is at the centre of that. The new austerity is a litmus test. And I find it, for example, uh, the Labour Party leader, Ed Miliband, in a, what is widely seen as a brilliant piece of politics, uh, has captured uh, the high ground with his uh, the squeezed middle and the, the austerity. But around energy prices, completely missing but exactly the same arguments apply in food. And they are not unrelated commodities, food and energy. And yet there isn't even the pretense at saying, uh, well, let's cap supermarket prices. Uh, there's actually just a silence, which is interesting. Who knows what might come? But the hypermarket model is what the Conservatives in the Thatcher era and John Major era, and indeed in the Blair Brown era, they, they, they adored. When uh, prices looked like they were going up under Blair, Blair sent for Walmart and said, please buy Asda, or oh, this is what we learn, uh, will you please buy Al uh, Asda and inject even greater price competition. But how low can food prices go? They can't if we want to deal with climate change. They can't if we want people to eat a healthy diet. When 40 to 50% of British grain is fed to animals uh, to give cheap meat, it's not going to be cheap. And hey, presto, it's cheaper if you get it from Brazil or Malaysia or Thailand. This is, it just doesn't add up. The picture of food policy of the last 30, 40 years just doesn't add up. But the politicians aren't getting a grip of it yet. But round the edges of politics, I think there is a rapidly growing uh, agreement that the sexual interests of environment, conservation, public health, social justice uh, need to come together and indeed have more sharing of ideas 
for the restructuring that's now got to go on for food policy and the food system. That's if we want to address the problem. So if we have a situation where where where, where food is is in some in in terms of the national obesity epidemic, certain foods are too cheap, and uh, but still families can't afford to feed themselves, and that austerity situation is really only going to to worsen over the next five ten years. What do we do? What's the what? what? Well, one of the things one of the things. Let me just throw in another factor into all of this. Uh, in the last 50 years, Britain's food has come out of the food as fuel model uh, that essentially was ushered in in the 1840s onwards. And partly because of travel, partly because of supermarkets and the phenomenal capacity that they have had to control logistics and to improve distribution systems. Partly because of that, the British have got used to having extraordinary choices. They've travelled to Spain, travelled to Italy. They go much further now. The Brits think curry is a British food and pizza is children's favourite. In my childhood, they were unthinkable, absolutely unthinkable. I'm looking out of my window here in the middle of the city of London, looking at... uh, as it happens, it's a brand new Sainsbury's local that's just opened up in a, an empty set of shops built on a speculative housing block opposite me. And of course, the Sainsbury's local is there now, because in the 1980s onwards, essentially greengrocers and independent stores were driven out of business. And now the hypermarkets have come back into town with new formats and are almost on every street corner again. Food is plentiful everywhere. And I've not been into this store. It's only been open three weeks. I've not been into it yet, but I guarantee I could go in there and graze the world. Those expectations are now hardwired into British food culture. And in that sense, the politicians are in a really difficult position. They've got expectations in the consumer, i.e. voting public's blood, in their deep veins, where the saturated fat has not yet got to, they have got this assumption that they have the right to go in and eat what they like. And that's a very tricky bit of politics, because almost all of us outside know, firstly, that this has been a fantasy. Secondly, that what we choose is class-based, culture-based, ethnicity-based, gender-based, social role-based, and indeed has been made flotsam and jetsam in culture by the vast power of advertising and the cultural industries. All of that is part of the complexity now, Rob. All of that is part of the problem that the food industry knows it's got to address. So to answer your question, there are great complexities here. But the great irony is some of the very big food companies are now looking ahead and saying, oh, ye gods, we have got to lower our carbon. We have got to lower the embedded water in our food. We have got to deal with um, inequalities in Africa where we source food or Latin America or wherever. A, because they're getting richer. B, because eagle-eyed eager beaver NGOs are watching us and exposing us and so on. But finally, 
because we want to be around in 30 years time for our shareholders and our own pensions. So there is a very paradoxical situation in food politics. Right now, the coalition has walked away from food. And I think if he has anything between his ears, our Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs is obsessed about badgers for obvious reasons and is also obsessed about exporting more food to compensate for the yawning food trade gap. In that sense, he's returned food policy to Thatcher time, because that's what was happening in the early 1980s. That's why the British government set up food from Britain. This lot has abolished it. Um, it's extraordinary how they're locked into a very narrow view of really what's going on in food. There's much more open thinking about what we've got to do uh, in some of the boardrooms of big and small food companies uh, alongside the radicals, the green, the progressive sort of forces, the academics, you know, the, the loose group of people who've got interested in food policy and contributed the vibrant food policy thinking in Britain that we're now very famous for. Uh, around the world. Why, people ask me, why is this extraordinary debate in Britain? Well, I would say it was Mrs. Thatcher, actually. She walked away and just said, government's got no role in this. So for 19 years, we had the opportunity to really ask big and fundamental questions and to not take government particularly seriously. But we ultimately need government to square the circle, to help set frameworks. And I see that coming again, Rob. The big companies cannot resolve the problems that have got to be resolved, but they're beginning to be aware that, of the enormity of the problems that have got to be resolved. And in that sense, they're joining us, the sort of outer circle of people moaning from the margins. <laughs> there was a report that came out uh, uh, a couple of, it was published this week about um, by Adam Briggs and people that was in the British Medical Journal, looking at the impact of um, that if you actually taxed the carbon emissions on food, uh, that, that that it would uh, that it would lead to all the other health indicators um, going up. Um, are there are there ways in which government could intervene uh, meaningfully to make a difference, but and not be seen as um, pricing people who already can't afford to eat properly out of that food? There is a difficulty, and the difficulty. I have given the code name sustainable diets and you will find it's not my name but it's a policy difficulty which is this term sustainable diets first uh, coined as far as I can see by two very good American uh, academics Joan Gussow still alive and uh, Kate Clancy in a paper nearly 30 years ago. Um, Essentially, the problem is we know a sustainable diet being living lighter on the earth well, means eating differently. It doesn't mean to say you can't eat as you think you like some foods, but it means the quantities change, the waste changes, the embedded energy, the embedded water, the impact on biodiversity, the seasonality, the variability will all undoubtedly change. The problem is that's not the hypermarket model. I can walk into that hypermarket little mini market over the road and it's full of packaged goods. 
everything's pre-made, pre-processed, even the green vegetables will be wrapped in plastic, the salads are pre-made, etc, etc. Uh, that world is antithetical to a world of sustainable diets, some of us think. I think there are tensions. Others, and indeed when I was a government commissioner, I argued this, others argue that we can bring more, we can bring public health more in line with environmental footprints of food than we think we can. It's not as difficult a route to travel down as one might think. You don't all have to be hippie Totnes or Hebden Bridge or Stroudites uh, and uh, sort of eat the brown sandal when you've walked it to death. It's not like that. Uh, significant but not, not impossible adjustments remarkably alter the public health profile of your diet and also alter its environmental impact. And the cost of that doesn't need to go up too dramatically. That is the positive version. Uh, I think that's true. I hold to my own schizophrenia. I think broadly there is a good message if we, by reducing the footprint and meeting public health, uh, the, the two can align. But there are some fundamental issues about land use that I think are tricky. Uh, one is, if we want to have energy, unless the whole of Britain has its roofs covered with PV and we have windmills, I see problems in energy. Unless we dramatically alter car use, just turning to electric cars, uh, if people want to travel to far distant places, if they want their homes filled with electric gadgets and labour-saving devices. I particularly like my Dyson Hoover and I love my wash washing machine. Uh, I could do without the dishwasher, but the washing machine I adore. My wife and I agree on that absolutely. That world, that world has big problems for land use. When we look around in the current, uh, the whole sort of local food world and all the the stuff with farmers markets and CSAs and all the kind of stuff that's that's happening and the five diet and all those sorts of things, can we can we see that those things could scale up if they if they're able to kind of uh, you know if if they manage to scale up should should they be looking at themselves as being an alternative economy to the supermarket economy or as a complementary economy to the supermarket economy? Um, this, I hope, is not read amiss. I'm talking to you from a university seven-storey glass block in and on some of the most valuable property space on the planet. I'm a university professor, you know, you know where I'm coming from, I, but I, I have a totally sort of bizarre world position in that I can look at this crazy world of food, but yet I'm well fed and I've got a job and I've got a nice office here and a nice office at home, you know, etc. I, when I look at my own past, 
which you don't know anything about. I went, left being an academic with a PhD and went and became an anti-hippie farmer uh, for seven years on the Lancashire Hills. I've dug ditches, built roads, fenced miles of fencing, planted 5,000 trees, had to go and get water from a river to, you know, have a bath and seen the joy of building a proper water system, had, uh, you know, sawdust loos and seen the joy of having a loo in, indoors, etc., with our own septic system, which we built. You know, I, so I'm not being po-faced in a professor in what I'm about to say. I've been there, seen there, done lots, etc. I look at what goes on in the Fife diets and the 100-mile diets and the uh, localism with immense affection and immense respect. I give many, many talks around the world and around Europe where I make reference to them and say, I think these people are the experimental pilots. They're not the canaries, they're the pilots. They are plowing into really stormy seas and daring to experiment in a really important way. That's what I think they're doing. But I think the connection of Fife Diet or 100 Mile Vancouver Diets, etc., etc., the, there needs to be a next stage or sorry, a parallel process, that's better, not a stage, a parallel process, which is drawing the lessons of that into mainstream culture and also mainstream culture uh, having to argue with it. Not everyone wants to go and eat a Fife Diet. Uh, it's a magnificent voluntary initiative which experiments in a fantastic way. Uh, I can't see it taking off in Bermondsey. Uh, I can't see it taking off in Balham. Uh, but we need to have those sort of experiments. You've tried it. Transition towns, the incredible edibles. You know, there this constant attempt to take from rural or small town existence and apply it into big cities. I think the big thing that's got to happen is big cities have got to come up with their own big experiments. And I see, you know, this really interesting process of the sustainable food cities and all of that thinking is coming out of the planners, the geographers, my great, lovely friends at Cardiff. and We're part of that network here in our centre. I think that is going to be really important, not to walk away from the fifes and the Totnesses and the incredible edibles. You know, I've said I have deep emotional affection for it. I have my own intellectual, not roots, but some roots in that world as well. Uh, but I know that that doesn't apply to city. That doesn't apply to Britain or Birmingham. Uh, it doesn't apply in a multi-ethnic world. We've got to be experimenting with other ways of getting engagement and transition. Um, so I think, you know, for me, this is why, boringly and academically, I came up 20 years ago with this phrase food democracy, which I, uh, I hope very much I live a few more years. Uh, uh, but I 
really would like to, and I'm working sort of quietly to writing what I think about that. But what I meant by that when I gave a talk in Canada about this was that there's a messy experimentation and it's about building more accountable food systems uh, which meet needs and can evolve and can change. What we've done in the uh, post-Second World War period is seed, as in C-E-D-E, our accountability and reflexivity to very powerful uh, capitalist enterprises, which are very finely tuned to our every whim. They monitor us like no organizations other than the National Security Agency and uh, SIGINTS and um, uh, the Cheltenham uh, uh, GCHQ do. Uh, next and right up there, I put Tesco and its uh, uh, club card and the intelligence gathering that has been done. Uh, they know everything, how we fart, how we breathe, when temperature changes, what we're likely to want. It's astonishing, but it's not democracy. It's not the accountability. And that's why Tesco was found wanting when it came to the horse meat. They actually, they knew the price of everything and how to flog everything, but they didn't even know what was in their burgers. And they're now in shock internally, actually. In terms of food and the food system and food policy, is there any way that we can see austerity as an opportunity? It sounds very bizarre, but my answer is yes. And that is awful. But I'm a realist. I'm a, a wonderful. As an academic, I can sort of be airy-fairy and look into the ether and sort of think big thoughts and ask big questions. But I'm a pragmatist. I'm a, you know, I've been a farmer. I actually think very practically, believe it or not, at the same time as these airy-fairy thoughts. But one of the things that I've learned from my nearly 40 years of working in food policy and contributing in a small way to this really wonderful growth of, of thinking and experimentation that we're all doing, you're doing it. I mean, the, the Transition Time movement is part of that wonderful democratic stirring. Um, it's one of the things I've learned is that dire times are one of the only moments when structures get laid bare. You know, the unease about the consumer bubble that emerged in the commodity crisis was parallel with in the world of food. And it's left people making jokes about bankers, uh, but not get a grip of the politics that is handing over power to them again. There have been rule changes in the bankers. Don't think there haven't been changes. I'm in the city of London. I look at it. It, there are huge changes. That's why consumer credit has been reduced dramatically because they were told to increase their actual, as opposed to the fantasy paper figures, uh, their actual assets. In food, I don't think a parallel thinking has gone on. And, and yet the skeleton of the food system is really being laid bare by food austerity. It is shocking. Someone said to me the other day, a, a wonderful playwright it was actually. Was, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, I will say this. I was asked by the Wellcome Trust, the tr biggest 
trust in Britain, I think in Europe, uh, funds a, a theatre group based here in London. And they wanted to get the theatre group to do some plays around food and public health. And they asked me and a whole gang of us from academia and, and also NGOs to come and brief five playwrights. And we did for a day. It was wonderful. It's like a sort of seminar. And then the first one play, I think two plays have come out, one by a very well-known playwright. And it's now about to go on tour around schools and education and things. And in the first reading of this play that I went to in the Bloomsbury Festival two, week, two weekends ago, and I gave it another meeting and talk and debate with another fellow academic, and this playwright was there. And we then, then professional actors read through as live this play. It was just stunning. You know, how this brilliance. And I spoke with this playwright afterwards. Uh, and it was in private, so I won't say who it was. But I said, this was just wonderful. Why? How have you done this? It's just, your skill is just breathtaking. To get these emotional nuances. I mean, it's her trade. So, you know, it was, it was obvious, you know, this is their skill. But it was still wonderful. And then this person said... I actually just feel I, two motivations got me to try and deal with this complexity you all poured at me. One was my fury that this rich country of Britain could have food banks. And then the other was much more personal. And I said, you're right, all is explained. And, and she ended this play, you could see why. You know, there was an anger, but there was, the play was actually a process of realization. And you could see, once this person, this, this woman said that about this play, I understood why she'd written it. It was just, you know, there was a core anger to say, how has this come about? We're awash with food, but there are people in food banks. And the indignity, I mean, I, who worked on food poverty since 1980, exactly, so that's 33 years. It's, it just in, made me livid that uh, when the Trussell Trust came out reporting on World Food Day, October the 16th, that its food banks have trebled in throughput in the last year. In other words, in the first third of their year, they'd served as many people as they did in the whole of the previous year. And that the government's response to that was that this is because there are more food banks. They didn't see that this is because of need. And what we've got is a debate now exposed that is purely 19th century in its moralism of the distinction that writers from Immanuel Kant, Karl Marx, right across the spectrum. It's the distinction between needs and wants. And that is absolutely at the heart of what we've got to address. Uh, so austerity at one level is shocking, absolutely shocking. Is it an opportunity? Yes. Would we rather it wasn't there? Yes. But we are where we are. We have to be pragmatic and say we cannot turn a blind eye to this.
we have to see it for what it is, explain it for what it is, dissect the dynamics for what it is, and get organized. Ultimately, the reading of food policy that I and many of my colleagues around the world have is things aren't made by experts. Things aren't improved by technical fixes. They're made by movements. And I think we haven't got an anti-food austerity movement yet, but I think we are poised to have one. I think we're poised to have a really interesting period of food politics. And frankly, it's about time we did.